0: Welcome to the September 2020 episode of the Family Tree Magazine podcast. I'm Lisa Louise Cook. This month, we're going to be looking into the future and seeing what genealogy is going to look like after COVID. New Jersey librarian and genealogist Daniel Klein is here to share his ideas from his recent article for the Jersey Journal. It's called, What Will Genealogy Research Look Like Post-COVID-19? Then Diane Southert is back and she's going to help us figure out which testing company has the best ethnicity estimates for your research. I'm going to be telling you about three of my favorite and free mobile apps that you can use for genealogy and they come from my article 13 fantastic and free genealogy mobile apps. And Amanda Epperson will be here, she's the e-learning producer at Family Tree University and she's going to tell us about the newest self-paced genealogy course that's going to help you build your skills. But first, we love to hear from you, and this month's Tree Talk segment is from listener Jason Burt. He's going to share a fascinating project that he's been working on to bring the sounds of the past to the present.
1: My name is Jason Burt, and I'm a history teacher and historian from the Sacramento area. I'm working on a World War II project involving one-of-a-kind recording that is, at its core, a family history project. My grandpa was a Juilliard trade trumpet player and a music teacher much of his life after his schooling and time in the Des Moines Symphony Orchestra. During World War II, he was the lead trumpet player of an Army Air Force headquarters band stationed in the Philippines. Before the war ended, this 20-piece orchestra recorded themselves playing 10 chart-topping big band songs of the time period. My grandpa was permitted to have these recordings by his CO, and he brought them home. My grandparents have both passed away, and I recently inherited all my grandpa's military belongings. He thought he lost these recordings in the 80s. However, I discovered them going through his attic. I am working with a four-time Grammy Award-winning sound engineer, Gavin Larson, from Burbank to digitalize, clean up, and master these works into an album that will also include a 28-minute narration of my grandpa talking about his time with the band during World War II and his time at March Field in Riverside, California. This album will be released for sale around Veterans Day. I am also in beginning talks with the USO to partner on getting the word out and to donate a portion of the earnings from the album to their organization. The project has multiple goals to achieve, but the general idea of the project is we're going to release a never-before-heard album that was made 75 years ago in the Pacific by a regular World War II Army bandsman, i.e. not Glenn Miller and attempt to make these World War II veterans a platinum-selling artist by selling a million albums.
0: In our featured segment today, I've invited Daniel Klein to the show. Now, Danny is a librarian at the Jersey City Free Public Libraries, New Jersey Room, and he's a founding member and past president of the Hudson County Genealogical and Historical Society. He writes Tracing Your Roots. It's a monthly genealogy column for the Jersey Journal, where he was a reporter and he was an editor prior to becoming a librarian. Well, he recently wrote an article for NJ.com. It's called What Will Genealogy Research Look Like Post-COVID-19? And I think that's a very good topic to be talking about. So I've invited him here to the show. Welcome, Danny.
2: Thank you, Lisa.
0: I know you're a librarian. So tell us, what does it look like right now? How have things changed at the library?
2: Well, right now, our library is currently closed uh, to the public still. I know some libraries have uh, reopened on limited uh, basis, but we are currently closed to the public. But we are still doing a lot of uh, research and reference requests uh, via the telephone and email.
0: So have you been doing that from home or or have you guys been staggering and having employees come into the library?
2: Well, we were working at home for a very long time, which was uh, difficult because we didn't have our collections about us. Right. But uh, we have we had access to uh, online features that we were able to help a lot of patrons with while uh, you know a backlog built up as the shutdown went on. Recently, uh, a few weeks ago, we started going back in staggered shifts where there's only one or two. De- two people in our department at a time, and we now we have access to our collection so we can help people with much more than we could when we were working from home.
0: Oh, that's great. I'm sure that's been great for you guys. It just feels good to get back into the research that you love, and I'm sure that folks have appreciated being able to start getting answers again. And what do you anticipate? What do you think it's going to be like when things are fully reopened right now, you know across the country, it's happening in different stages. So once we kind of get all reopened, what do you think will be any changes that libraries can expect?
2: Well I, I think depending on uh, what the policies will be when we do finally reopen to the public, there may be limited access for people, maybe um, uh, maybe we won't have those people who come in and sort of camp out at a table for an entire day, or to people who make research trips just to us for uh, uh, research purposes. Um, we are looking into using uh, teleconferencing software. I know that a lot of other libraries have been doing that. Right now, the questions that we've had uh, don't really require that. They can really be answered simply with, with uh, email or, or a telephone call. Uh, We haven't had any really um, deep research questions that that we've had to field just yet.
0: Right. I imagine it's almost like that chain of effect where those who may have been doing more in-depth research, whatever project they were working on has been changed, has been slowed. So I'm sure we feel it all the way down the line. I know uh, in talking to the Association of Archival Researchers recently that they were talking about that, of course, this massive shutdown has created huge budgetary constraints. It's really hurt everybody financially. We don't just bounce back from that just because we can now open doors. Do you have concerns about the budget deficits that may have occurred impacting the ability for the library just to reopen back to the same service that it was, and then impact, like you were talking about, the possibility of putting in place new technology to anticipate the future, which of course costs money. (laughs) How does that affect you guys?
2: Well, you know, we were lucky enough that, that before COVID happened, we were able to get a grant to purchase some new digitizing equipment. So uh, we don't have that yet. uh, And some space has to be set up uh, in our department for that. But we hope that, that, this will, once we're able to go ahead with it, we'll be able to uh, make more things available online. We're also, um, we're also experimenting with, uh, you know, digital asset management software that will be, we'll be able to uh, allow patrons to uh, look up our, our digital collections as well.
0: Now, I'm hearing that, I'm thinking about, you know, libraries and historical societies and archives, and and another concern becomes, the more we get used to working from home, the more we try to focus on making things available online, so that we can anticipate any future issues, then that becomes a concern for those who are employees of all of these organizations. What are your thoughts on that?
2: Right? Well, I don't believe that our library uh, will be Uh, hit by anything uh, Anything drastic as far as budget goes Uh, our our budget was going to go into effect um, before COVID happened so uh, Right now we're safe. I know that other organizations have been have been hit and the fact of COVID itself where people are uh, in a financial bind Uh, is going to hit library employees who may be affected by this thing. And that's very concerning.
0: Exactly. Well, and even genealogists are financially uh, feeling the hit. And so I was thinking about, you know, when they go to an archive and you need to pay sometimes a, a fairly high sum for a particular service or to get documents or whatever, you know, that may taper back a little bit until people kind of all get back on their footing Let's talk about historical societies, though, because you, I know, have been very involved with a local historical and genealogical society. How do you see genealogy changing, or will it, after we get kind of all back out uh, into the open again?
2: Well, I, 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 again, I mean, going back to uh, how we are operating, where we're, we're in the middle of our summer vacation right now, or actually we're at the end of our summer vacation right now. Uh, but before we took our break, we were um, uh, doing meetings via teleconferencing with uh, the speakers and uh, our members uh, available, um, and I expect that to go on at least until the end of the year, if not longer. Um, for our society, though, I'm, I'm hoping that as... Finances are turning down that people will still renew their memberships in order to to help us move along. That that also is is uh, uh something of some concern.
0: Right. We have operating budgets to consider. It's uh, and of course the genealogy societies, you know, we always operate on a very thin margin. But I know right. genealogists obviously are really passionate about their societies, I, I thought about that during this whole lockdown that um, it really hit our demographic hard, because really, the vast majority of people seriously impacted, have been um, older, and certainly, you know, over 70 over 80, which, of course, we see many of those folks at our genealogy societies. So do you anticipate that's going to slow the return, even when things are open, and it's a okay, and people are told, okay, the doors are open. Uh I imagine you might expect to see a little slower return by the actual members
2: uh I don't know. We have a pretty active membership, and i uh I anticipate that they are all itching to come back uh to our meetings for for the genealogy and just for the social aspect of seeing everybody being able to get out and socialize again. Oh yeah. Uh, <laughs> when, once 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 social distancing is a thing of the past, of course.
0: Yeah, I'd say that was that's probably one of the most the primary purposes of a genealogy society, it's that camaraderie and that socializing as you said. And that kind of brings us to right. conferences and seminars. Um, I was telling you before we kind of got started today that I was prepping for um, the Federation of Genealogical Societies conference that was supposed to be in person in St. Louis, and we're doing virtually today. Um, How do you see that happening? I know that many seminars by societies and some conferences, even into 2021, they have to plan a year ahead. They're already kind of saying virtual. What do you think long term?
2: right i i th- well i think in the short term certainly there there is going to be a lot of of teleconferencing and virtual virtual conference going going on um I, you know not just for genealogy but also for the library and arch- archival associations i belong to uh they've all cut back um They've cut back on, on live and in-person programming, but there seem to be, as we've done with the library, we've had to go to a, 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 a virtual mode of operation. So there seem to be a lot of little mini-conferences that, that, that are going on. It seems to me maybe even a little bit more than usual. So uh, that's kind of the, the silver lining of the cloud of COVID for librarianship anyway, and uh, uh, the, uh, genealogical societies is that uh, we can do more of this kind of programming.
0: There certainly has been an uptick in education. I think everybody saw this as an, you know, well, one of the things we can do is we can dig into the education piece, which oftentimes we kind of set aside because we're knee deep in our own research. And that brings me finally to to research. Do you think, considering the truly unforeseen impact of all this, I don't think anybody a year ago ever imagined that this kind of situation would happen, and we'd find ourselves not leaving the house. Do you think that in the genealogy industry that there will be a push to put more and more online, have more research options, or do you think people will be pitching to, to get back and get the personal touch as well? Are you hearing any murmurings within your society and your library?
2: Uh, no. I mean, I, I would hope that certainly we can, uh, for access purposes, uh, our repositories and the online services can, can push to put, make more available. But, um, you know, there is something missing in that when you research fully online you don't have that personal aspect where you can ask uh a a librarian or an archivist or a historical society member you know what else do you have what do you think is is you know how does this how is this different locally than it might be someplace else those kind of personal questions that you can only get from another person and not from, a, you know, a, a, a digital search interface. Uh, I, I, I would hope that there would be uh, more online, but I, I think the personal aspect uh, certainly is still and will still be a draw for uh, uh, genealogists going forward.
0: Yeah, I'd have to agree with that. I think we've all had that experience where we've been in a library or an archive and you're talking to somebody about something that you're working on or something and the person comes over and taps you on the shoulder and says, "Um, I'm working on that or that's my cousin or I know where that film is. (laughs) There there are just some wonderful things that happen when we get in person. Uh, Any last tips that you might have shared in your article or things that you think that people should keep in mind as things are reopened?
2: if you are doing virtual or phone research you know it's always it's always a good idea to, to call ahead in advance uh, to the place uh, to the repository where you're going to do research or where you're looking to do uh, research you know to kind of get the lay of the land see what the collections are uh, if you can't find any or have questions about what what's what's available online um, it's always a big help to have a little bit of advance notice this way. Uh, you know, we could we could pull out material in advance so research can get done, you know, straight away. And, um, and you don't have to wait for a librarian to go and pull something, especially when you're on a phone conversation. Nobody likes to hang out on, on the phone, uh, while they're waiting. So, um, a call in advance is certainly uh, appreciated and, and a good idea.
0: Yep. I think preparation pays off whether we're doing it at home or doing it in person. <laughs> and certainly exactly, because, right. you know, it's it's very difficult for, I think, all of these organizations and libraries to even keep the website up to date as to what the hours and the availability really is. So a call makes very good sense. Well, I wish you the very best as your library and your society reopens. And I um, thank you so much for coming to the podcast and talking about this uh, topic. Appreciate it, Danny.
2: Thank you very much for inviting me, Lisa. It's been a pleasure.
0: In today's DNA Deconstructed segment, we're going to tackle a common question that people have when deciding where to test. Which DNA testing company has the best ethnicity estimates? Here to help answer that question is your DNA guide, Diane Southerd. Welcome back to the podcast, Diane. Thanks for
3: having me, Lisa. And I can't tell you how glad I am that you're covering this topic. It is still probably one of the top five topics I get asked about when I'm talking to people about DNA.
0: Oh, I imagine. And it sounds like such a simple question, but I'm guessing that there's really nothing simple about anything when we're talking about what's the best. So... Uh, What affects uh, the accuracy and the usefulness of the ethnicity estimates that we're receiving from our testing companies? Right, Good
3: questions, right? Because when we're paying for something, we want it to be correct. Uh, The thing about DNA to keep in mind first off is that because you get half from your mom and half from your dad, if you're wanting to represent the full gamut of your ancestry with a DNA test, you just can't. You physically can't because you only have half the record from your mom and half the record from your dad. But if we want to get the most accurate from what we actually have, that's a good question. And really, the accuracy depends mostly on one major factor. It's your reference populations. So every company has different reference populations who they're comparing your DNA against.
0: Oh, So depending on who they've tested and who they have the information on, that makes our ethnicity look a certain way. So reference populations, each company, we've, you know, we've got several to choose from. They have their own, but they
3: also have ones that they kind of go out and seek, right? Absolutely. So each testing company is going to have two different kinds of data in their reference population. They're going to have what I'll call the reference data where, or the research data, where they've gone out and, and said, we need more people from this population. And they've collected samples or they've drawn from other research studies, things like that. And then there's user data like you and me and everybody else who's tested. When you submit your test to the testing company, you can agree to be part of their research. And that's a whole other ball of wax. But essentially, some people have chosen that they will allow the company to use their data in research. And so then your data is then incorporated into that reference population as well.
0: Okay, so talk to us a little bit about these different companies. And like, if somebody says, well, I'm sure I have British ancestry, you know, is there one that would have more of that
3: population than another? How do they kind of break down? Right. So yeah, each company kind of has their own little part of the world that they're really doing well at. If you're talking British ancestry, then hands down, uh, right now, living DNA is is really breaking up that part of the world the best way uh, in that they have 21 different reference populations just for the UK. Uh, but other companies are tackling that part of the world really well too. They're just doing it in different ways. Uh, there are other populations that maybe aren't as well covered. So if you come from say the Middle East or Asia or South America, not every company is going to service you very well. And so it's important for you to double check if that company is offering to test you and then compare you to a population that you know you're from. Otherwise, your results aren't going to look right. If you're from Uzbekistan, for example, and your reference population at the company doesn't have Uzbekistan, They're going to tell you you're from somewhere else and you're going to feel like they're wrong when really they just are doing the best they can with the information they have. So I
0: imagine that's why also people are seeing kind of an evolution of their ethnicity estimates because the population is evolving and growing, I would imagine.
3: Oh, for sure. And so it's also important, I think, to watch and see when was the latest update and is this company working hard to find and create and research new reference populations? Or are they kind of the same as they were three years ago? Uh, So that's, I think, an important point to look at as well.
0: I remember you told me a story once, I'd love to have you share with the audience how, you know, somebody who says, I know I'm Irish,
3: but can you end up with not seeing Irish in your estimates? Absolutely. So I remember the story I probably told you. So there was a, a lady who came up to my booth at RootsTech actually, and she had done ancestry DNA for herself. And then at a genealogy conference, she'd won a a family tree DNA kit, and the uh, she gave it to her husband. And his dad was born in Ireland, so they had just gotten the results back. And she comes to my booth in a complete panic, and she said, "I don't know how to tell my husband that his father's not his father. He doesn't have any Irish ancestry." And so I was like, okay, hold on, let's take a look at this. And sure enough, if you look at his DNA matches, there's lots of people from his father's side that have taken the DNA test. She was getting concerned because she was looking at the ethnicity result and there was no Irish category. And that's because at Family Tree DNA, they don't have a specific category for Ireland. So you literally cannot be Irish at Family Tree DNA. But she was expecting that because she'd seen Irish at Ancestry. So it's important to understand the differences between companies, especially if you test at multiple companies, so you can better understand the results that you get.
0: Well, that dovetails right in line with just our general genealogy research, you know, when we if we find a record, and we're working with it, to, to really fully understand the record, you have to go and understand the source and where it came from and how it was compiled and all of the, the background of what led to that creation of that record. And so... Sounds like we need to do the same for this type of genealogical record for our DNA results. Um, Absolutely. If those of you listening want to learn more about this, of course, Diane writes for Family Tree Magazine, and we'll have a link to her article. It's called DNA Q&A, The Best Ethnicity Estimates. And it sounds like there's a little bit of homework to do to answer that question for yourself. Diane, thank you so much. As always, great to talk to you.
3: Thanks, Thanks, Lisa.
0: Genealogy is no longer restricted to home, archives, and libraries. Mobile apps give us the freedom to research and review our family history anywhere at any time. Head to your mobile device's app store, type in the word genealogy, and you're going to find countless results. But of course, not all genealogy mobile apps are worth the cost or really the space on your phone or your iPad. And some of the best apps for genealogical research don't even have genealogy in their description at all. Today, I want to share with you three of my favorite apps from my premium article at familytreemagazine.com. It's called 13 Fantastic and Free Genealogy Mobile Apps. The first one is FamilySearch Memories. Now, if you've been participating in the Family Tree on FamilySearch, you're going to love using memories. And if you haven't been putting your Family Tree up on FamilySearch, this app may convince you to do so. It provides an easy way to collect photographs, stories, and audio recordings and bring them together with your family tree. You'll need a FamilySearch account to get started. It's free. The Memories app, which is also free, is gonna synchronize using that account when you're connected to the internet. But don't worry, because even without an internet connection, you're still gonna have convenient access to your data through the Memories app. You can start by adding old family photos, and you can tag the faces that appear in the photos to automatically add the images to those relatives' profiles in your family search family tree. You can also snap images of genealogical documents with your mobile device, and then you could tag them with the people that are named. The app Stories feature is an easy way to collect details about the photos that you've added. You can expand your storytelling to favorite family jokes and sayings. And if you don't want to type it at all, just tap the microphone and dictate your story. The story is attributed to you and it includes the date that you created it. And finally, don't miss the audio tool. You can use it to interview family members and record audio memories about your parents and siblings, family traditions, vacations and a whole lot more. So that's the Family Search Memories app which you can search for in your device's app store. Our second app is the MyHeritage app. Now MyHeritage is especially known for its tech tools and its free genealogy mobile app really doesn't disappoint. Most of the full site features and languages are available on the app version. You can build your family tree, you can review automated record and tree hinting, and you can scan and upload photos to relatives' profiles right from your mobile device. And of course, now more than ever, that is really worthwhile doing because MyHeritage now features, for Premium Plus and Complete subscribers, their enhancement tool and their colorization tool. Everybody can try them out for free, but you have unlimited use of these when you are a subscriber. And those with DNA results at MyHeritage can access DNA ethnicity and match information from this app as well. Tap discoveries in the menu for a list of people in your tree for whom MyHeritage has found some new information, or you could tap any person in your tree with the discoveries icon to go directly to their new matches. The patented instant discoveries feature uses MyHeritage's billions of online records and other users' family trees to reveal information about people in your tree. Search all the collections at one time or you can choose a specific historical record collection as well. To search a specific collection, just tap research in the app's main menu. Then instead of tapping all records, just tap by collection. You'll see the newest collections at the top of the list and then you'll see all the different types of categories of collections. For example, if you wanna tap birth, marriage and death, then you'll see all the specific collections within that category. Advanced search capabilities allow you even more control as you search. You can get started on the home screen by tapping research and that allows you to search all records or by collection. You can slide the Enable Advanced Search button just under those categories to reveal additional search fields. The Relatives portion of the form is unique because it allows you to search for people in conjunction with other relatives and other names. And you can invite family members to collaborate in the Invite Members section. You can do that by email or by text message. And you can sync members with your device's contacts or add them manually. And new members will be able to explore your family tree and help it grow by adding facts, photos, and people. So that's the free MyHeritage genealogy app. And the third app I want to share with you today is one of those apps that doesn't say genealogy, but it's perfect for genealogists. Because there's nothing sweeter than when genealogical research leads to old family photos. Unfortunately, old photos that have survived the decades are oftentimes worse for wear. And that's where the Adobe Photoshop Fix app makes quick work of photo restoration right from your mobile device. Now, to get the best results, scan your photos at the highest resolution that you can. If you scan the photos to your computer, save copies of those photos that are stored on your computer to a cloud based storage app, something like. Dropbox or Google Drive, and that's going to give you access to those photos from your computer on your phone. You can import a photo to the app and then tap Healing in the menu. Under Healing, you're going to find the Spot Heal tool, and it's amazing. It lets you instantly correct small blemishes with a simple tap of the finger. The app makes the correction based on the surrounding area. It kind of analyzes it. It uh, applies what it thinks is going to work. And if the fix isn't quite right, you can tap the undo icon and just try zooming in a little bit closer and tapping spot heal again. But you'll be amazed at how accurate spot heal can be. You can fix larger and kind of more serious image defects with their clone stamp tool you want to zoom in on the problem area. And you do that by spreading the image with your two fingers. And then next, you can tap a spot on the image that looks the same as the spot that you want to repair. So if there's a big tear across somebody's coat, you know, they're wearing a coat in the picture, you would tap an area of the coat that's in good condition. And that's what you're going to clone on top of the area that has the problem. So if you're repairing a blemish that appears specifically on the lapel of your ancestor's coat you would just tap that nearby portion of the lapel that's in good condition so that you can replicate it and then you can adjust the size and the hardness of the clone how structured it looks by tapping the brush icon on the left side of the screen and adjusting the tool. Sometimes it helps to kind of feather it out a little bit to make it look more natural as you replace the bad area with the good area. Also, in the main menu at the bottom of the screen, you're going to find the Smooth tool. And it does a really nice job of detecting the faces in the photographs and kind of smoothing the graininess that can come with a photo's age. Tap Adjust, and you'll find a wide variety of editing tools. So then, whenever you have a few spare minutes, you can pull up the free Adobe Photoshop Fix app and bring your old photographs back to life. Those are just three of my favorites, but I've got 13 for you in my premium article called 13 Fantastic and Free Genealogy Mobile Apps at FamilyTreeMagazine.com. I will have a link for you in the show notes. And you can learn much more about using apps for genealogy in my book, Mobile Genealogy, How to Use Your Tablet and Smartphone for Family History Research. It's available at the store at my website, GenealogyGems.com. Well, it's time to wrap up this episode. But before we do, let's check in at the editor's desk. And we're going to be talking to Amanda Epperson this month because she's going to tell us about a new course that they've got over at Filmature University. Hi, Amanda.
4: Hi, Lisa. How are you today?
0: Doing great. Always excited to see the new courses you guys are coming up with. What's the latest one that we can look forward to?
4: Um, We're having a brand new course start on September 28th, introducing um, students to my heritage. And it will be moderated by Rick Kroom, who has um, written for the magazine extensively, and who has also taught our family search course.
0: And Rick has has been here on the show, so the, we all <laughs> we all know Rick. He's wonderful. So this mm-hmm. is September twenty eighth of mm-hmm. twenty twenty. Now, if somebody's listening yes. later, all you have to do is go back to the website and check and see when it's going to be held again. But but tell us what we can expect in this online course. This is self paced, right?
4: Right, self-paced, and the RIC will be available to answer questions that you have um, as the course progresses over the four weeks. And it's an introduction to help you sort of master MyHeritage to be able to use it. So it starts with an introduction to, like, the most important thing or the the thing people are most interested in is how to build a family tree at MyHeritage and how to attach documents and images um, to that. And in the next lesson, there's best ways to search the site. There's actually four different ways. You can do a global search of everyone and everything. (laughs) Or you can search by category, like by census record or wills. Um, You can also search from your tree. So if you could click on someone in your tree, it will take you to documents for that person. Um, and also you can search by um, a specific record collection. So to drill down through their um, search parameters to find like a particular year for the census, like 1870 and only search that record. So he also talks a little bit of in lesson three about um, heritage DNA and DNA health and the little bit of things you can expect from those tests um, and the, particularly the limitations and caveats for the DNA health. And the last lesson is, sort of taking the next step and using the other tools that are available at MyHeritage, particularly their um, picture enhancers and their colorizer. You can put black and white photographs onto their site, and it will colorize it pretty quickly and automatically, which looks like a really cool tool.
0: It really is. And you know, when you invest in a membership or a subscription at a site like MyHeritage, you want to get the most out of it. And mm-hmm. I know with their Complete Plan, I think with their Premium Plus Plan, you get unlimited colorization. And they have the uh, the Enhancer tool as well, mm-hmm. which sharpens it up. So, I mean, there's so much you can do, way more than even building your tree, searching for records, uh, mm-hmm. doing your Lab. DNA, and doing photos. It's, it's amazing. It's a
4: one-stop sort of package for your family tree
0: exactly well okay so this new course starts in at the end of September of 2020 Mm -hmm. and of course we'll have a link in the show notes that you can learn Mm -hmm. how to master using my heritage and of course if you're listening down the road um, you can still use that link because it'll take you over and it'll show you when it'll be coming up the next time always great to talk to you Amanda and uh, thanks again for sharing with us this uh, new and exciting course we appreciate it
4: it was lovely to speak with you Lisa
0: Thanks so much for joining me for the September 2020 episode of the Family Tree Magazine podcast. It's the monthly show from America's number one genealogy magazine. You'll find the show notes for this episode at familytreemagazine.com slash podcast. And if you're enjoying the show, do us a favor, tell your friends about it. How about at your next zoom meeting for your genealogy society, let them know that you're listening to the family tree magazine podcast. Again, I'm Lisa Louise Cook, you can visit me at my website, genealogygems.com. There you'll find my free podcast, the genealogy gems podcast, and the weekly free live show on YouTube called Elevenses with Lisa. So until next time, have fun climbing your family tree.